Before I start on the second talk on the 1904 revival, can I just make two comments about this morning's talk about uh, the challenge of Islam to the, to the Christian church? I was quite shocked when Beth said that many colleges are having a problem trying to understand the difference between Christianity and Islam. And as she was saying that, some words of Dr. Lloyd-Jones came to mind. Uh, he would never call himself a prophet. Uh, in fact, his catalogue of cassettes is entitled Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Apostle and Prophet. And uh, I just hired a cassette from them, which he said there are no things as apostles and prophets today. So I wrote to the society to say, by the way, you better change the title of your cassette uh, to advertising Dr. Lloyd-Jones' taste because it's not true. But anyway, he was prophetic at times. And just before he died, he said the last battle the church will have to face is what is an evangelical. And before we get the gospel out, we've got to get it right. And if we don't get it right, then who cares what we communicate? We're communicating absolute rubbish. And the second thing, I just want to correct Beth on one thing. I'm sorry to do this. But uh, she was referring to, to Paul having a son who's an expert on the medieval period. And she said she doesn't know anyone who knows as much about the medieval period as Paul's son. Listen, I've been a pastor and work with many deacons, and I have some deacons who are authorities on the medieval period. <laughs> and how to keep the church in it. <laughs> We're looking at the 1904-1905 Welsh Revival, and uh, I tried to explain last night that the Welsh Revival wasn't a matter of one man getting up at the beginning of November 1904 and revival was there. I tried to show you ten keys that over 15, 20 years, God was slowly turning up the temperature in Wales. And then suddenly, the whole thing ignited in November 1904. What is revival? Some people think revival is just being silly. Surprising how people equate silliness with spirituality. And that in a revival, everything gets very silly and out of order. But the Bible tells me that God is a God of order. You've only got to look at the human body. You've only got to look at the universe. God is a God of order. And who can explain God? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is the last verse in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. Ezekiel, having seen into the throne room of heaven, says, I saw the glory of God. No, he doesn't. He says, I saw the likeness of the glory of God. No, he doesn't. He said, I saw an appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And if Ezekiel could look into the throne room of God and not describe accurately what he'd just seen, we haven't a chance when it comes to revival. It is God breaking into the church. It is not something we work up, it's something that God brings down. And it was Charles Finney who said that we can have a revival whenever we want. And who hasn't met those kind of people? If we just fulfill the conditions, then we can bring a revival. But that is a myth. And it's a kind of cop-out, isn't it? Because, well, we haven't got revival because we haven't fulfilled the conditions. Therefore, the onus is on us. And you can spend your life beating yourself up. In the days of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees had one of these kind of uh, sayings that went round that if every Pharisee was righteous together in harmony for 24 hours, the Messiah would come. Uh, and they said, well, the reason why he hasn't come is because we're not righteous. A total misunderstanding. And it certainly puts the onus on us. I haven't the faintest idea why God sometimes comes and God doesn't. I have no idea. We sing that hymn, don't we? I know not how the Spirit moves. Convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. And then we write books trying to explain how it does happen. We don't know. And sometimes God shows up and sometimes he doesn't. And those of you who are preachers and evangelists will know sometimes you could almost preach from the woman's own. You feel such liberty. <laughs> Don't try it, by the way. <laughs> People's friend is far better. <laughs> but there are other times where you feel, feel that you are drilling rock with your finger. And you say, Lord, what has changed? I don't know what the difference is. Who can explain why God sometimes shows up and God doesn't? And so in Wales, things were spiritually changing. There was a, a warming of people's hearts. God was coming back onto the church's agenda. And, and people were getting saved. Long before the 1904 revival, things were happening all around Wales. And, and certainly people were coming to the Lord. And people couldn't understand what is happening. 
So when it came to the 1904 revival, there was an explosion of these three, three things taking place. And it all started in West Wales. It didn't start in Lucker. It started in a place called Blynanach and, and around Newquay, where, where two men were concerned about the deadness of their members. A, a, a man called Joseph Jenkins and his nephew, uh, John Thickens, uh, and this uncle and nephew said, all we can do is just call people to pray. And as they began to pray and began to ask people where they stood in relation to the Lord, suddenly things began to warm up. And what is interesting, Newquay is a holiday resort. And as people were coming down to Newquay, as it still is a holiday resort today, as they went along to chapel, they said, something's going on here. And they went back to their chapels after holiday saying, we had a wonderful time at Newquay, but the best thing was Sunday. We heard wonderful things and we saw people alive in the Lord Jesus. And so this was spreading slowly throughout Wales. A mission was held down there in October 1904. And uh, Evan Robertson, a few students who were studying at Newcastle Emlyn, went all the way down to see what this mission was about. And they stayed over for a couple of days and went to one of the early morning prayer meetings. I don't want to kind of read chunks of stuff because that turns people off and, and we understand that. So I'm just going to try and paraphrase it to try and keep your attention. On the 29th of October, having travelled from Newcastle Emlyn, which is quite a distance, in a cart, so by the time they got to the meeting they were awake, they went to this early morning prayer meeting. And, and Evan Roberts has written down what has happened. He said, I, I sat there and... You know, people were getting up to pray, as they usually do in a prayer meeting, which is why we have prayer meetings. And he wanted to pray. And Evan Roberts said to the Lord, Lord, do you want me to pray now? And he said, I heard God say, no, sit down. And other people prayed. And then he said, look, is it now I should pray? And God said, no, wait. And then after the third time, he said, Lord, I can't wait any longer. And the Lord said, well, pray then. And he said, I exploded on the inside. He said, the thing that happened was, was the love of God came into my heart and the love of God constrained me. And that word constrained is a powerful Greek word, isn't it? It means to put in a vice. When Paul says the love of Christ constrains us, it means the love of God squeezes us like in a vice and what is in comes out. And all that came out of me was an amazing love of God. He said, I began to perspire. I fell over the pew. He said, fortunately, the lady in front of me was, was, was Mrs. Davis. He probably nearly took her out. And uh, fortunately, she had a, a clean handkerchief in her pocket and was dabbing his brow. Uh, unfortunately, on, on the right-hand side was, was another lady called Mrs. Davis. <laughs> and on the left side was, was Mag. And uh, I had this picture of Exodus 17 in a new light in relation to Evan Roberts. Remember how Moses was praying and on one side he had Aaron and her? Well, he's got Mag and Mrs. Davis and, and they're mopping his brow and he's crying out, oh Lord, bend me, bend me, bend us. And then he starts shouting out, the grace of God is amazing. And, and Mrs. Davis, who's mopping his brow, goes, it certainly is amazing. And then the whole congregation in one voice sang, I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flows from Calvary. But all this was through the medium of Welsh, not English. Wow. He said, while all this was going on, several things happened. Number one, he said, God gave me a vision of hell. Now, I have to put a few personal things in. We'll come to critique the 1904 revival uh, tomorrow morning, I become a little suspicious uh, of people who tell me they have visions of hell and visions of heaven. I'm not saying they don't take place, but I'm a little suspicious. Uh, who can bear to look into hell? Who can bear? Well, he said he, he, he saw into hell. Okay. We can only quote what he said. Secondly, he said, I saw the Lord Jesus defeating the devil. That's interesting. How, how would you cope if a church member said to you after the prayer meeting, Pastor, can I take it on one side? I saw hell last night, and I saw the Lord Jesus defeating the devil. What would you say? We'll give you a slot on Sunday evening. <laughs> and thirdly, he said he saw a hand carrying a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper was written a figure, 100,000. 
And he said, I, I took that as God telling me 100,000 people were going to come to faith in Christ. Now, I have to be quite frank with you here. It's one of those figures that is banded around, that is very hard to pin down. But if you analyze it carefully, I think the nearest estimate of the 1904 revival is not 100,000. It's around 80,000 people. But I'm not going to fall out of 20,000 people who wouldn't like 20,000 as, uh, as, as kind of fruit for your labors. After experiencing all that, they had breakfast and went back to Newcastle Emlyn to try and carry on their studies at this prep school to get them ready for ministry. He couldn't settle down. Could you understand that? So he said to the headmaster, I just can't get my head around my studies. The headmaster asked him why, and he shared his experience. The headmaster said, the best thing for you to do is to go home. And so the next morning, he got on the 1045 from Newcastle Emlyn to, uh, to Lucker, and, and he arrived home. When he opened the front door, his mother was astounded. What are you doing here? You're meant to be training for the ministry. He said, Mother, sit down. I must tell you what has happened to me. And he explained to his mother what had happened to him when he was down there at, at Blinanach and, 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 and in Nuki. She wasn't a believer. She couldn't understand it. You better go and see the minister. So he went round to see his minister, and he explained to his minister what had happened. The minister was, was floundering. Okay. He said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, can I just ask one thing? You give me a meeting tonight for the young people. Okay, said the minister. And so he called a meeting for the young people of Mariah Lucker, and 18 people turned up and a child. And so there was 19 and this child, and Evan Roberts said to these young people, let me tell you what happened to me the other day. And he explained it, and it was, well, that's nice for you. And he said to them, but I believe God can do it for you. And so he said, we're going to stay here until God does it for you. And he said, we've got to start praying and singing and asking God to break into our lives. Very little happened for a while. And I was thinking suspicion, if some of us were there, would have said, this is time for me to exit. But they stayed. And then one by one, the people began to weep and began to confess their sins and began to call on the Lord to do a deep work within them. This is all through the medium of Welsh. Lucca in 1904 was a very small, isolated Welsh village. You can imagine people in the village saying, why are our young people not back from chapel? But why are the lights still burning at midnight? What's going on in that place? Can you imagine the story that these 19 people said when they went home? The minister wanted to know in the morning what was going on. What was going on burning chapel money? So Evan Roberts explained, God came. Can I ask another request? We have a meeting tonight. In the meantime, word had rippled out from Lucker right through the valleys, that something had happened last night in Mariah Lucker. When Evan Roberts turned up on the 1st of November 1904 to the second evening meeting, the chapel was packed to the rafters. You'll always get holy rollers. Is that right? We kind of a sniff of revival or a sniff of something. People are jumping on planes, you know, going here and there to kind of to see if it's real. People turned up in their droves. He was stunned. So he got into the pulpit and explained what had happened to him, what had happened down uh, in, in West Wales, what had happened the night before with the young people. And then he said, I've just got four questions to ask. I'm not going to preach. And by the way, Evan Roberts was not a preacher. I say this carefully. You very rarely caught him with the Bible in his hand. He'd go down well in the 21st century church. <laughs> Whether he had it on his phone or not, I really don't know. <laughs> but he very rarely had a Bible in his hand. And so he said, I've just got four questions to ask the congregation tonight. Number one, is there any sin in your life that you have never confessed? Number two, is there anything in your life which is doubtful? If it is, get rid of it. Number three, I ask you to do whatever the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. And number four... I want you to publicly stand up and confess Christ. And to be quite frank with you, during the 14 months that Evan Roberts was functioning, that's basically all that he said wherever he went. No new sermons, 
but just asking these four questions. Have you confessed your sins? Is there anything doubtful in your life? If there is, get rid of it. Do what the Spirit tells you to do and confess Christ. The whole place erupted. It's like putting petrol on a fire. They were there way, way after midnight. People were getting on their knees, confessing their sin, admitting they were covering sins up. Some were saying, I've never confessed Christ in my life at all, even though I'm a Presbyterian or and this and that. It hit the headlines. And once the media got hold of this, you can imagine, people came in their hundreds to this small Welsh, Welsh village. At the time, Russia and Japan were involved in big conflict. The Russia-Japanese War. It didn't even make the front page of the Western Mail. It was a small column on the inside. What was it all about? It was about the 1904 revival. Up the valleys, in a place called Abadair, up the Cannon Valley, there was a small chapel called Bryn Zion. And uh, they couldn't find a preacher. That's a mystery to me. How could a chapel not find a preacher? So they said, if we don't find a preacher, there's, no, there's, there's going to be no services. One of the deacons said, I've heard there's things going on in, uh, in Lucca. Let's ask Evan Roberts to come up. So they wrote to Evan Roberts and said, if, if you're free on Sunday, do you mind coming to lead our services? Because we have no minister for the day. Amazingly, he said yes. They expected, you know, the kind of usual Presbyterian will start with a verse of scripture. Then a word of prayer. We'll sing number 51, and then we'll have a Bible reading. Then we'll sing number 75, you know, and then we'll have some notices. He arrived with a bevy of women. The Evan Roberts girls. Uh, and uh, I, I've taken one or two photographs, and they're on the backboard for them, on the backboard for you to look at. And uh, you can imagine, you are a traditional Welsh person, 120 years ago, you sat there all prim and proper in your Sunday best in the chapel when he comes out the vestry with a handful of women. Teenage girls. How does he start the service? One of them sings a solo. What? Where from? The pulpit. Oh no. It gets worse. Having sung the solo, another one goes into the pulpit to sing a duet. Whose bright idea was it to bring this man up from Lucca? They got through the service until they came to the, to the, uh, the sermon. He didn't preach. Evan Roberts just sat in the pulpit and wept. And you imagine yourself, you know, you're a dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterian. You mean, you're shaking in your boots already because of what has happened. And there's a man crying his eyes out in the pulpit. You're thinking, what on earth... There was a deathly hush. Who's going to say what? After a very, very long silence, a lady stood up and she said, I'm not a Christian. I'm religious. I want to confess Christ. And this kind of began to ripple through the chapel. Evan Roberts and the girls stayed there all day. Word got out that great things were happening in the, in the Cannon Valley. And by the time of the evening service, the whole town was at gridlock. And every chapel in that area was filled with people calling on the name of the Lord. Absolutely unbelievable. I have an account here written by an agnostic. Again, I don't want to read it out because it, it's very difficult sometimes to read this kind of stuff in public and keep people's attention. But everyone went along. Atheists, agnostics... You know, Christians, those who are religious. What's going on in our town? This agnostic describes how he went along and after many hours he managed to get to the, to the vestry where the deacons were. And he said, one of the deacons knew me and said, you can have my seat, I've been here for eight hours. And he said, I, I sat there in full view of this man preaching and I was cynical. And he said, like an arrow, the Holy Spirit hit me and I found myself confessing my sins. And he said, I saw some of my neighbors confessing their sins. And some people from my street were weeping. And he said, I have never seen anything like that in my life. He said, there were no sermons. 
Just people standing up and reading a verse of scripture. People breaking into song. People confessing their sins in public. And all this happened because one bright spark said, I think we could perhaps fill the pulpit with a young man down in, in Lucca. You can imagine after this, it was impossible for this man to live a normal life. Everybody wanted Evan Roberts. A man by the name of T. Marty Thomas. He knew Evan Roberts and he became his stage manager, for want of an expression. And uh, believe me, you know the kind of anorak I am. Uh, I, I, was, I was down in South Wales just literally before Christmas. and it, it, I've been looking for this man for ages. I found him. I found him in Neath Cemetery. And I said, I said, Mr. Marty Thomas, I've been looking for you for years. <laughs> this is the man who worked with, with Evan Roberts during all that time and saying, Evan, I wouldn't go there. It's too busy. I think you should slow down a little bit. He tried to stage manage him because he was burning himself out. He had time to eat, to drink, to sleep. He was just burning himself out in days. Slow down, young man. Sad to say he didn't take too much heed to T. Marty Thomas. For 14 months, this continued in the life of Evan Roberts. Going here, going there, preaching here, preaching there. In 14 months, he preached on seven major preaching tours. Preaching in hundreds of meetings and in 36 different locations. I don't mean he just kind of just preached one night here and one night out. Sometimes he was there for a fortnight. Week after week just preaching the gospel in the sense of asking these four questions and begging people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was almost like the Californian gold rush. Everyone was just kind of on their feet running around South Wales. In Neath, he said God told him to stop speaking. And for a week, he didn't come out of the house. So all these meetings were announced that Evan Roberts is going to speak in, in Neath. He didn't, he didn't show up. His argument was Ezekiel chapter 3. So he did use the Bible. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, God told Ezekiel to say nothing for a while. And he said, God said the same thing to me. Uh, and people were very disappointed, just waiting for him to come out of the bedroom. After seven days, he came out again. Oh, we're back on. The show's back on, as it were. And everyone's then rushing to, just following this man around. And he was quite a phenomenon. But it's not just Evan Roberts. And, and I want to try and show tomorrow. I think if we just focus on Evan Roberts, we miss what the revival's all about. And by the way, he burnt himself out within months. Uh, and virtually after 14 months, we never really hear of Evan Roberts again. But the others that we generally don't hear of were faithfully at it for years afterwards. Uh, and I feel very sad really. You know how it is people come to London, take a few photographs, uh, and they think they've seen Britain. And there are people like that in the Christian world, you know. They sing, and can it be, and think they know about Charles Wesley. Go, he wrote 7,000, mate. <laughs> and there are people who go, Evan Roberts, I know about the 1904 revival. No, he came very quickly and disappeared very quickly. There were stalwarts who were at it all the time. In North Wales, at a place called Rus, Rus Pranathigrog, just outside Wrexham, uh, a, a well-known spiritual centre, things were doing very well. It has produced some interesting kind of Christian hymn writers and musicians over the year. A church in there asked R.B. Jones, remember that man from Porth? Said, Mr. Jones, would you come and lead a mission in our church? And so while all this was going on in South Wales, R.B. Jones left Porth and went to run a kind of normal mission at Penuel in Rose. He was not a sort of melodramatic character. Just a very passionate man, but didn't live on his emotions without any doubt at all. Totally different from Evan Roberts. As he was preaching, the spirit just suddenly fell. He was just explaining the gospel, and suddenly he found people all around the chapel just going on their knees. He wondered, I mean, if that happened when you were preaching or I were preaching, I think we'd be quite shocked, thinking, what is taking place here? And suddenly he found people dropping on their knees and weeping and asking God for mercy. And R.B. Jones said, I just stood back and I watched God work like a sea.
just rippling through the congregation. They were there halfway through the night. As people just got right with the Lord, and then when they got right with the Lord, they then went home. I read the account of a man by the name of John Parry, who died only in 1979, and he was 92 when he died, and at the age of 17, he was there. And, and he described what it was like being there when R.B. Jones preached and what it was like living in Rus. And he said, I can only put it like this. It was like Jesus Christ came to live in our town. That's, that's how I can describe it. As if Jesus Christ came to live in Rus and he was coming out the walls and coming out the chapels and walking down the street. He said, the presence of God was tangible. And there's a most well-known story of a man who came from Barra in Furness. He, he read in the papers that there was revival breaking out in North Wales as well. And he said to his daughters, I think you can miss school for this. These days it'd be fine for it, but uh, it, in those days he got away with it. So he caught the midnight train from Barra in Furness to Chester, changed at Chester at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to Wrexham to then go on to Russ. And at Chester Railway Station at 6 o'clock in the morning, he said to the station master, I'm, I'm hoping to go to Russ. He said, any indications as to, uh, as, as to when I'll get there and what to look out for? And, and the man on the platform said, when you pull into Wrexham R Railway Station, you will start to feel the presence of God. And, and he said, as I pulled into Wrexham Railway Station at 8 o'clock in the morning, he said, I suddenly realized God was in the train. He said, myself and my two daughters, we eventually got off the train at Ross. He said, no one told us where to go. We knew where to go because we could feel the presence of God. And he said, when we arrived at the chapel at 9 o'clock in the morning, they'd already been there and it was full from 7 o'clock in the morning. And people were just calling on the name of the Lord. So what happened in, 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 in Rus was being multiplied right throughout the whole of North Wales. And outside of Everett Roberts, and, and I say this carefully, and we'll come to analyze that tomorrow, whenever R.B. Jones went into the pulpit, whenever W.W. Lewis went into the pulpit, whenever Dr. Kerry Evans went into the pulpit, Whenever Nantlice Williams went into the pulpit, they went into the pulpit with a Bible and said, we're here to explain the gospel. And they were gospel preachers. Joseph Jenkins, John Thickens. Evan Roberts never explained justification by faith alone. Now, I'm not... I'm only giving you the facts. And I spent a year researching this man... We've lived with him in our house. My middle name is Evan. I've yet to read a clear exposition of what he said the gospel really was. And my understanding is this explains why at one level, when he stopped going around, the whole thing collapsed very, very quickly. But men who expounded the gospel, men who preached the gospel, men who went into the pulpit with, with the Bible, then things sort of remained a lot longer. I suppose the most powerful impact the revival ever had in North Wales was in a place called uh, Bethesda. These days is one of these kind of trip wires. Is that what you call them where you kind of you hook up and you fly down? Zip wires. There we are. The trip wires to me. A uh, lot of money. And uh, Bethesda is known for its slate. And prior to the 1904 revival there was a huge strike in the slate quarry of Bethesda. It split families, it uh, split chapels, it split the town. Uh, and there were families who hadn't spoken to each other for over 12 months. And there were people in chapels who hadn't spoken to each other for over 12 months. It was toxic. And I've heard accounts of people who actually lived through that saying it was horrible at home, it was horrible in chapel, the hatred in the town was terrible. Revival hit Bethesda. 
And when the spirit began to move right up that valley from Bangor, going right up into Snowdonia, it solved everything. Overnight, families who hadn't spoken for 12 months came together. People in the same church who sat on the opposite side and heard the same message for 12 months suddenly came together and said, I'm really sorry. That is powerful. I had relatives who worked for the railway and they lived next door to each other. One was my grandfather and one was uh, my father's father-in-law. And they both worked on the railway and they both went to the same chapel and they both fell out. And for years they never spoke to each other even though they were neighbours and they worked in the same place. And they always left for work a minute after each other. And walked to work a minute apart and walked back from work. And yet they both called themselves believers and both worshipped in the same primitive Methodist chapel. And the truth be known, there are people like that probably in our church that we don't speak to. We kind of see those things going on. And in a second, the Holy Spirit brought an end to all that and there was great reconciliation. David Lloyd George you know Lloyd George? He probably knows your father anyway. Your father knows Lloyd George. He was asked to speak at a political meeting in a place called Pafeli, just outside Krikiev. 2,000 people turned up to the political meeting. This is while the revival's going on. He was just about to get up to speak when someone in the audience struck up a hymn. That was followed by another hymn. Someone gave an exhortation. They sang another hymn. Someone felt they should preach the gospel. The meeting never did take place. And a political meeting turned into a meeting where David Lloyd Jones, with his own eyes, witnessed people calling on the name of the Lord. Lloyd George was very religious, but my understanding is he wasn't a saved man. He knew all about these things, but didn't really know them within his heart. What about Liverpool? Don't you know about Liverpool? Liverpool is known as the capital of North Wales. And in 1900, which isn't too long ago, 120 years ago, there were 30,000 Welsh people living in Liverpool. And just north of Pierhead, there is an area that was called Little Wales. In fact, probably six months ago, I actually took Roger there, and I took him to Little Wales, and all that is left now of Little Wales in Liverpool is a little plaque to say it was here the first Welsh chapel was built. And uh, there were 70 Welsh non-conformist chapels in Liverpool. We did backslide that day. We also went to see the grave of Kendard and Sir the Black. <laughs> I didn't want to go. And uh, I have since confessed, and the Lord said, I know, David, I read your heart. <laughs> he wanted to go to Liverpool. And his advisor said, Evan, if I were you, I wouldn't go to Liverpool. It's not for you. There are different kind of people. He said, I want to go to Liverpool. And so Evan Roberts went to Liverpool to address the Welsh people of Liverpool. He was there for three weeks, and about 750 people claimed to profess faith in Christ. But it was the beginning of the end. He changed. Why? There's a huge difference between people who live in the principality and those who live out of the principality. There is. I'm not being rude. And my wife is Welsh. And uh, people who left the principality to work in the capital of, of North Wales, Liverpool as it was called, had a different mentality than people in the valleys. Sort of going into the wider world changes your perception. So he wasn't kind of dealing with valley people. And I don't mean that in a critical sense. He was dealing with a different kind of person. So they came expecting a great orator, a man with charisma and passion. So the largest hall in Liverpool at that time was the Sun Hall, which seated 6,000 people. They crammed 8,000 people in. So here's this big occasion. There's lots of Welsh singing. Imagine 8,000 people singing. Wow. 
Then it's Evan Roberts. He just sits in the pulpit and cries. And you can imagine folks saying, come on, man up. You know, I've, I've just left the dockyard to come in here and preach not to watch you cry. And so he's, he's weeping, come on. So they don't understand him. Come on, preach. And when he does eventually speak, he just asks these four questions. And you can imagine sort of hardened city people. Is that it? Is this all the fuss? And so he doesn't get them on, on board. And then because he, he senses that opposition, he then turns on the congregation. And he says, I'm sensing great hardness in Liverpool, and I know what the answer is. It's the ministers. They're against me. And then he starts to name them. Wow. On one occasion he was preaching in Liverpool, I going through his four points, and uh, he said, I feel that someone in the congregation is trying to hypnotize me. He said, there's a hypnotist here. And I have to give him credit, there was. And a man later confessed that he'd gone to the meeting as a hypnotist to try and hypnotize him while he was preaching. And then he started addressing chapel politics. And uh, when I was in Lentwick Major doing my summer pastorate back in the early 80s, a retired Baptist minister came on holiday to Lantwick Major and uh, he was on the same caravan site as, as I was living in while I was uh, down there doing the summer pastorate for 10 weeks. And he was in the congregation for a number of weeks and I felt a little bit nervous, this, this retired pastor was there. And he was so helpful to me. And he took me on one side and said, David, I'm at the end of my ministry. I want to help you. Oh, that was so kind of him. He said, if you're going to tell people about Jesus... Tell them about Jesus, but never go in the pulpit and start running other people down. That is not what you're called to do. And you know, as evangelists, we're here to offer the good news of Jesus. There's people who drive us mad. Okay? And there's a time in maybe expounding on certain issues to say, this is a dangerous area, be careful. But when it's evangelism, we're not there to start saying, well, by the way, there's ministers here opposed to what I'm doing. and That's not preaching the gospel. That is for the church. And if that has to be said, surely that has to be said in the context of the church, ministering to the church, not evangelizing to the world. Maybe there were ministers opposed to him and lots of nonsense were going on within the chapels. Speak to the ministers in private. Not in front of 8,000 people, some who've come to find out about the Lord Jesus Christ. Things got so bad. How about this? Four Christian doctors produced a certificate to say that they believed he was sane. And they signed it. And so he had a piece of paper to say that four medical doctors believe that I'm of a sound mind. Now you haven't got one of that, have you? I haven't got one. I just take it by faith. But when people have to start writing a medical certificate to say that you're mentally sane... That does get a little bit worrying. Why this so peculiar behaviour? And so he, he left Liverpool. And I would say from having lived with the man and tried to understand him, he was never really the same after that. The papers were scathing about him. He would never speak to anybody from the media. Nope, he wouldn't even give them a syllable, let alone a word. One of the great leaders of the O4 revival I've mentioned several times is a man called Nantlice Williams. I think that's a lovely name. He, uh, he's buried in, uh, in Ammonford, right in front of the chapel there, opposite a man called J.T. Job, great poet and a great preacher. I once heard uh, Jim Packer preach there, but, but that's another story. Interesting evening. Nantlice Williams thought it would be nice to have Seth Joshua one of the revival preachers, to come and preach one Sunday in his congregation. So, Seth Joshua preached. The following Sunday, it was Nantlice Williams to preach. And then they were going to have a mission the following week. The week before the mission, Nantlice Williams stood before his congregation and said, my text for this morning is repent and be baptized. So he preached it passionately about the need to repent and be baptized. Then the mission came. He got converted. So Nantwise Williams had to stand in front of the congregation and say, you know how I said repent and believe and be baptized? Well, I've done it. <laughs> and 
how would you feel if you went to a church where your minister said next Sunday I got saved last week? But I thought you were saved. No, it was just worse. And Nantalice Williams went on to become a very powerful preacher, a gifted hymn writer, and he wrote wonderful hymns for children. And probably about ten years ago, I was watching S4C, and my wife was translating for me, and a relative of Nantalice Williams was speaking on television, saying, oh, you know, your, your grandfather was a, was a great poet, you know, kind of a great poet, and wrote some lovely hymns. And this person said, yes, do you know how it happened? Because he was born again in the 1904 revival. Didn't expect that on television. Yeah, he was born again by the Spirit of God in the 1904 revival, and it changed his life. Let me just tell you one or two things that were happening elsewhere, and then I'll start to sort of wrap it up so you get the feel of what was going on. I studied in a theological college for three years uh, in Cardiff, and believe me, living in a theological college is not easy. It is not easy. I... uh, I was there and uh, my eyes were opened. My eyes were opened. I used to say, Lord, if this is the future of the church, you better help us. I used to uh, go out on the streets every Wednesday afternoon and I said to a full college of men going into the ministry, listen, we are here because we're here to tell people about Jesus. Would anyone just join me for one hour a week every Wednesday afternoon to go onto the streets of Cardiff and speak to people about Jesus? How many folk do you think came? Zero. Just one person joined me. He was a medical student. What what are you in theological college for? Just to have a good time in scripture? So theological colleges are incredibly hard. At one of the nation's theological colleges in the 1904 revival, during the middle of one of the lectures, suddenly the spirit came. Everything stopped in the college. Even the college professors and lecturers were on their knees confessing faith faith in Christ. At Bangor University, in the student common room, suddenly somebody broke out with a hymn. And before long, the whole of the university stopped. No lectures for the day, so that people could get right with God. How about this? Mr. Benyon was a pit manager at one of the pits in the Aberdare area. And he was making an inspection of the pit. And there were a group of men having a sandwich and a break. Jolly hard work. And the pit manager said, nice to see you, gentlemen. Just come to see the pits all right. What are you talking about? And one of the men was called Tom. He said, Mr. Benyon, we've been talking about what God has done in our hearts. What's that? said Mr. Benyon. And so Tom said, let me tell you my testimony. I've got saved. And he shared how he came to faith in Christ. And then how about this? A collier saying to the pit manager, he said, Mr. Benyon, can I ask you a question? Are you saved? You didn't do that. We have the answer. No, Tom. I'm certainly not saved. Although, as you know, I've been a deacon in my church for 25 years. And all that time, No one has ever asked me this very important question until you did just now. Are you saved? What was the outcome? Tom said to his pit manager, would you like to get saved? (laughs) I mean, we kind of, it is funny, you try that on the bus on Monday morning. (laughs) Tom said, the pit manager... And the officials who came with him to inspect the pit got on their knees with all of us and yielded to Christ. See, that's the power of the gospel. That's, that's what was going on in those days. It's incredibly, incredibly exciting. Did it have a wider impact? Well, it had a massive impact right around uh, the world. But in relation to the rest of our country, it rippled down to London. You've heard of the London Welsh and the London Irish, their rugby teams... Well, there were lots of Welsh people in London. You said, why are all these Welsh people in London? Would you like to know? At the turn of the 20th century, where did all the milk from? Where did all the milk come from in London? It came from West Wales. Milk from Cardiganshire, Ceredigion, was put on the overnight train, was taken off the train at Paddington, and was distributed 
to Welsh people who had little shops all around the place. That explains why Dr. Lloyd-Jones, as a young person, was in London. Why? Because his parents owned a milkshop. And every night would collect, well, early morning, collect the milk from West Wales and sell it to Londoners. The supermarkets put an end to that. So there's a huge Welsh community in London. We want Evan Roberts. He went there. How interesting. He wasn't very successful. In Wales, very successful, but people who were mingling with English people, not as successful as before. However, news filtered to Spurgeon's College that something was going on in Wales. Why? Because five of the students in Spurgeon's at that time were Welshmen. Imagine starting theological studies in September 1904, going down to London to study for the ministry. You come home to your home church at Christmas, you walk into revival. What on earth has gone on here? You then go back to college in London to speak to the, to the principal of Spurgeon saying, we've got a revival at home, you better come to Wales. So the principal of Spurgeon's and also the minister of Spurgeon's, Thomas Spurgeon, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, both went down to Wales to see what was going on. They were mega impressed. The principal of Spurgeon said, I went to three meetings and in fact I was asked to take part. He said, the first meeting I can describe with one word, joy. The second meeting, joy and holy laughter. The third meeting, solemn holiness. When I lived in Cardiff, back in 1983, a gentleman now who's quite old in life, gave me an account of his grandfather of how he was converted in the 1904 revival in in, uh, in Ebervale and it breaks every rule of my theological framework this man explained how as an unbelieving coal miner he heard things were going on in the chapel in Ebervale so he went along and sat on the back row to hear what was going on and, and he heard a man preach the gospel and he found it very interesting and he thought, that's okay, but it's not really for me. And he says, as I was walking out of the chapel, the Lord hit me. And the joy of the Lord so filled me, he said, I couldn't stop laughing all night. He said, I went home, and my family said, what's up with you? He said, I couldn't tell them because I was laughing so much. He said, it wasn't a flippant laughter. He said, it was the joy of the Holy Spirit. That God had done something deep and lasting in my life. I think there's a million miles from that and the laughing revival. Barking and rolling on the floor like a dog. And the proof of the pudding is this. That man then walked with Jesus for the rest of his life, living in the joy of the Spirit. And God deals with us, with us in, in, kind of, in different ways. Campbell Morgan, Westminster Chapel. Dinsdale Young, Westminster Central Hall. The Reverend F. Webster of All Souls Langham Place. All were deeply impressed with the 1904 revival. George Cadbury, Cadbury's chocolate, he was a believing Quaker. He wrote to the leaders of the revival saying, this is absolutely wonderful. And soon as Roger sat on the front row, I had to put this in. It even went to Leeds. <laughs> I thought of a hymn by Charles Wesley. Depth of mercy can there be... <laughs> Mercy yet reserved for thee, thee the chief of spirit. Anyway, okay, I won't go down this. Three Welshmen came from, from South Wales up to Leeds. And they began to speak about what was happening in, in Leeds. They advertised the meeting. 82 people showed up. They stayed for a month. And after a month, 1,000 people in Leeds pass through the inquiry room of how to get right with Christ. That's 1904, 1905. Who was in Leeds at that time? Samuel Chadwick, founder of Cliff College. He did not suffer fools lightly. He said, this is a work of God. So even the 1904 revival touched Leeds. Let me just mention one more thing. It also touched the northeast of England. I guess many folk have heard of the Sunderland Revival. And you've heard of A.A. 
Body or Bodie. Uh, he was an Anglican clergyman up in Sunderland. He heard about the revival. He thought, I've got to go down to South Wales and find out if it's true. He was impressed. He came back. He told his congregation, I saw people being saved and repenting. This is what Sunderland needs. And if you read all the accounts of what A.A. Body wrote, he said there was a move of the Spirit of God in Sunderland. And many people came to the Lord. And if you could go to Sunderland today, I can show you a chapel which has a plaque on the wall which says, September 1907, when the fire of the Lord fell, it burned up the debt. Now, I wouldn't have put that myself, really. But obviously the church was in big debt. But just cleared all the debts as people came to faith in Christ. You've heard of Joseph Kemp? Joseph Kemp was a minister of Charlotte Chapel and he was burnt out. His deacon said to him what no deacon has ever said to me in my life, you deserve a holiday. <laughs> furthermore, we're going to pay for it. And furthermore, this is where you're going. You're going to Bournemouth. So Joseph Kemp was, was sent off on the church paid holiday down to Bournemouth to renew him. He got to Bournemouth. He'd been there two days. He opened the paper. He heard there was revival in South Wales. So he said, forget the holiday. He went to South Wales. He was so renewed in the Holy Spirit that at the end of the week he was back in the church saying, I'm here. You can imagine the deacons, you know, being Scotsmen. Gosh, we've wasted all that money. <laughs> Apologies to every Scotsman here. But uh, he came back renewed and he called a meeting. In one meeting, as Joseph Kemp told the people of Charlotte Chapel what he'd seen in those eyes, 50 people came to faith in Christ. 50. He said the work of the Spirit carried on in Edinburgh for six months, and at the end of six months, 126 people had yielded to Christ. He said all that came out of me being burnt out. Oh, I can speak here for the rest of the night, but I won't. One funny thing. I read one book which said that Sir James Young Simpson, the Queen's physician, a man with anaesthetic, was so moved by what he saw in the 1904 revival that he endorsed it. I thought, hang on a minute. He died in 1870. <laughs> ah, I get it. He was there in spirit. Like many people on a Sunday evening. Can't come past it tonight, but I'm with you in spirit. A lot of nonsense and a lot of debris kind of gathers around the 04 revival. But amidst all that, God was working. So we've seen the lead up to the revival. We've had just a little sample of what was taking place during the revival. Tomorrow we're going to ask, so what? What was all that about? But let's leave it.